everybody. Welcome back to Firewall's Don't Stop Dragons. I am your host, Kerry Parker, and we have another news show for you this week. Actually, a lot of topics I want to cover. Uh, I do still have that uh, interview with Corey Doctor coming up. Uh, that should be next weekend. So it was hopefully going to be this week, but actually there's a lot of stuff to cover this week, so it's that's, that's probably just as well. Uh, and we should have that interview with Corey Doctor next week that we'll talk about. Uh, kind of kicked off by that whole Sonos story where they originally were saying that they were going to not support some of their older devices. And it really led to the discussion of, do we really own our devices anymore when they can be disabled remotely by a company going out of business or changing their mind or whatever. So that'll be a, yeah, he's a really great person to talk to about that topic too. So, uh, that'll be a great interview next week. But let's talk about this week. We got lots of things to cover. Um, I talked a while back, actually, I interviewed the CEO of Winston Privacy last summer, uh, Richard Stokes, and uh, ordered myself a Winston Privacy box. And it, it, you know, they were just kind of getting rolling and it was a Kickstarter thing. And, you know, it took them a while to kind of get the production rolling. And I didn't really get it, I don't think, until November, which is what I probably ordered it in September and maybe got it in November because I was doing some remodeling or reworking really maybe that remodeling is a strong word but redoing some stuff in my network closet uh, i kind of wanted to wait to do it all at once and so it took me a little longer than i thought to get that done but i finally got that done and i've been using it now for a few weeks and uh, i've got some uh, stuff to report on that so we'll talk about that and my experiences so far with the winston privacy box and then we got plenty of news stories uh, i've got a funny story about a man from germany who hacked google maps to create a uh, an artificial traffic jam uh, we're talking about a flaw in the Philips Smart light bulbs, the Hue light bulbs, uh, that uh, would allow someone potentially to get into your network, to hack into your home network. I talked about ring doorbells quite a bit in the last few months, and uh, this probably is part of the backlash from some of the many articles about them getting a little cozy with the police. Uh, they've released some new settings on their devices that will allow you to better control your privacy and some security aspects. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about a critical Android Bluetooth flaw that's really exploitable by almost all modern Android phones. Uh, there's a patch available, but I'll tell you why that may not help. There were a ton of stories about these researchers who found a way to exfiltrate or, you know, remove, hack, pull out data from computers that were not connected to the internet through the monitor by varying the brightness. And I've got to talk about what that really means and and just talk about the whole hype machine in general when it comes to stories like that. And then I've got a, a long-ish article from the New York Times that talks about, the, the title is, the government uses, quote-unquote, near-perfect surveillance data on Americans. It's very telling, and it's very, unfortunately, timely, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about that and, and what that means. And it's, it's nothing new, it's something we haven't talked about before, but there's some really interesting points made in this article. And finally, it is tax time. And we, a few weeks ago talked to Justin Elliott from ProPublica about the, the long sordid history of the free file program. Uh, so I'm going to, you know, with tax time coming up, I want to recap that a little bit, but also talk a little bit about how to avoid tax scams because it is the season for that. And so basically I want to kind of touch base on that again and make sure that you're paying attention and don't get sucked into some of these uh, increasingly common scams. So let's do it. Let's get into the news. <laughs> First up, the Winston Privacy Box. Now, if you don't remember what this is, Richard Stokes, the CEO of Winston Privacy, was in the ad tech industry. And that's that's a nice term that basically is all about the, the tracking that is going on and the data collection going on 
to try to market things to you more efficiently and obviously to make more money doing it. So Richard was part of this world. He was in one of these agencies until he finally, you know, got fed up with where he saw things were going and decided to basically flip sides. And he decided to create a turnkey appliance that you, that anybody could attach to their home network that would protect your devices, not just security, but privacy and try to block at a single funnel location all of the tracking and malware attempts you know, to reach the malware sites and things like that from any of your devices in your network, all in one place. And this this was really the first I'd ever heard of anything like this. Uh, so it was really great to uh, to talk to him about it. And of course, I decided that I needed to check this out for, for you guys and for myself. I mean, it's something I thought would be interesting as well. But I, you know, kind of decided, you know, I really want to evaluate this thing personally and try it out so I could give you guys some feedback and maybe suggest it to you as well. So... Uh, it took a while for this to happen. I finally got the box installed and, and up and running. And as it, just like it says, it basically you plug this thing in and you, it's a little, it's a small box. It's, it's, you know, maybe as thick as a deck of cards and uh, as square as a deck of cards. I know cards are rectangular, but if you take the longest dimension, so, you know, maybe four inches by four inches by three quarters of an inch, it, it's, it's, a, it's a small box and it's got, you know, three plugs, one for power and one for input network and one for output network. And basically, you you want to put this thing between your cable modem or whatever kind of modem you have, if you've got fiber or DSL or whatever, whatever that box is that gives you internet in your house, put that put this box between that and your Wi-Fi router. Uh, now, there are many combo Wi-Fi router modems today. Uh, that's a, become a much more popular thing, and they're actually working on some sort of a solution for that. But you can still use it, I mean, because I personally... I've always recommended that if you've got a combo uh, Wi-Fi router and modem box from Comcast or, you know, whoever is your your uh, internet provider, I always recommend getting your own Wi-Fi router because if you use theirs, they have way too much visibility into your home network. So for privacy reasons alone, um, I always suggest people get separate boxes anyway. So anyway, it sits, it sits between those two things. Normally, it's just a single cable from your modem to your Wi-Fi router, and then from there, you know, there's either... Ethernet cables to, to wired devices, but mostly it's Wi-Fi wireless devices that all, you know, go through this box basically to, for your devices in your home to get on the internet. And today that includes not just your, you know, your smartphones and your computers, but also your smart TVs, your streaming boxes like Fire TV, your your uh, digital assistants like Amazon Echo or Apple TV, you know, all, all these IoT devices uh, all need to get on the network somehow. So anyway, so you put this box there and it basically becomes the gateway between the exterior, the, the, the capital I internet, you know, the, the big wide worldwide web and your home network. And so all traffic, all data coming in and out of your house must then go through this box. So you, you, you plug it between these two devices, you plug it into power and within 60 seconds, it has gotten itself configured and is, is working. It's a, it's a, it's kind of like a firewall, but it's it's also kind of like a VPN. It does a lot of these a lot of these things built in, but it's it's focused not only on security but also on privacy. So a lot of your devices, let's say your some of your Internet of Things devices, they they do a couple different things. They talk back to the mothership to get some service stuff, but then they talk to known tracking websites as well to upload data about you. And so that would be something this device would see and block and just not allow it to happen. They just they can't talk to these other services to basically tattle on you. 
but it's way more than that. It's also uh, doing some ad blocking. It's doing other filtering that will affect every single computer and every single device in your home. So instead of having to load, you know, special software on all these devices yourself, basically one fell swoop, this thing takes care of just about everything that's in your house. Now, of course, a caveat here is that when you take something out of your house, like your smartphone or a laptop, you are no longer protected by the Winston box. And these guys are actually working on some way to, uh, to fix that as well. But uh, that's a future topic. So does this thing work? Uh, yeah, it does. Uh, in fact, I found, if anything, it might be a little overly aggressive. And that's a good thing as far as, as, far as I'm concerned. Uh, but what you'll find... Uh, is that some websites might not work properly because it's, they're trying to block so many things. And again, I've said this many times, you know, when you go to a webpage like yahoo.com or gmail.com or, or twitter.com, it's a really a patchwork quilt. I mean, it looks like a single page to you, but there are many, many, often dozens, if not hundreds of separate internet requests going to different sites in the background to fill in all the little nooks and crannies of that page. And so this box does its best to block all of those requests going to tracking sites or to advertising sites or marketing sites, uh, or in some cases, known malware sites. And because some of these things are kind of helplessly intertwined, you will find, and as I have, that some websites don't work well when you try to block a lot of these things. They, they're counting on these things happening. And sometimes if they don't design their website correctly uh, in such a way that when these things are blocked that everything else still works, uh, you'll find that some things don't work as they should. And so anyway, this is a, it's a cat and mouse kind of a game. These things change all the time. And um, as part of this process, they're collecting data on these websites and creating special filters for popular websites and, and devices that will uh, allow them to work uh, with some non-default settings. But um, I recently talked again with Richard. I, he, I reached out to him and uh, for an interview again, and he and I ended up getting on the phone and talking for about a half hour, maybe 45 minutes. Uh, it was really great to catch up with him. They're doing, they've got some other great stuff coming in the pipeline and they've, this thing has gotten really popular. So, you know, full disclosure, uh, I am now part of the Winston ambassador program. <laughs> and, and that, that doesn't really mean that I'm here to push Winston on you. What it really means is that I'm, I get kind of special access to some upcoming features. I get, uh, I have the chance to give them direct feedback as an, from an engineering perspective on some of these problems I've found so that hopefully they can solve them for other people, uh, and that sort of thing. So, so yeah, full, full disclosure, but you know, I, I'm not getting paid for this. Uh, and I did pay for all this Winston equipment myself and the, all the subscription services myself. So, uh, there's no financial gain for me here, but I'm really just kind of hoping these thing, this thing improves, becomes a really good product. And so anyway, I'll keep doing that. And I'll keep giving you guys feedback every once in a while, but if you know, go to winstonprivacy.com, check it out yourself. There's some good videos there and some good information. And you know, if you really care about privacy and you know, you're willing to put your money where your mouth is, this is definitely something worth trying out. All right, moving on. So this 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 was a great story, and, and you and you may have seen this crop up in the news, but it, it really lets you know, you know, how how some of these things work and how Google Maps works. And if you ever wondered how the traffic maps work on Google Maps, uh, or you know Apple Maps or any of these mapping services now, they've got you've got an app on your device that brings up this map. Well, that app is also talking back to the map service to kind of give your location every so often. A, because it's got to know where you are in order to tell you, you know, where to turn. But also it can, with that information, it can do some interesting things. Like, are there a lot of cars on this highway? Is the average velocity of all the phones on this highway 10 miles an hour when it should be 70? That might mean there's a traffic jam. And of course, that's how they figure out some traffic stuff. Well, this guy in Germany figured this out and thought, you know, let, thought he'd test this theory a little bit. And uh, let me just read this article from the Washington Post. 
The streets were shaded with the dreaded dark red on Google Maps, warning drivers of a traffic nightmare. In reality, though, almost no one was on the road, except for a lone man pulling a little red wagon packed with 99 smartphones. Apps such as Google Maps provide real-time traffic data through crowdsourcing, monitoring the location and speed of phones traveling along a roadway. The assumption, as noted by Ars Technica, is that the phones are there because they're being carried by drivers inside cars. Usually, a bunch of slow-moving phones could be safely interpreted to mean gridlock. But in this case, the traffic jam was apparently the work of Simon Weckert, a Berlin-based artist. He calls it Google Map Hacks, performance art meant to demonstrate the pervasive, real-life influence of modern technology. He got the idea after going to a May Day demonstration in Berlin and noticing that Google Maps portrayed the gathering of people as a traffic jam. He decided to replicate the anomaly himself, he said, borrowing 99 phones from friends and suppliers online. An assistant wandered the streets of Berlin with the wagon in tow, smartphones piled inside. As he made his way down a given street, according to the video Wickard shared on his website, it would go from green to orange to red on Google Maps. All the while, the streets were mostly empty. In a statement responding to the questions about the stunt, Google spokeswoman Ivy Hunt noted that the traffic data is, quote, refreshed continuously, unquote, from multiple sources, including phones that have location services turned on. Continuing to, uh, to quote her, she says, we've launched the ability to distinguish between cars and motorcycles in several countries, including India, Indonesia, and Egypt, though we haven't quite cracked traveling by wagon, she wrote. We appreciate seeing creative uses of Google Maps like this as it helps us make maps work better over time, unquote. So I thought that was really clever. And I thought I thought it was interesting because we have to realize, you know, that a lot of these systems can be hacked. I mean, this this was kind of a harmless little piece of performance art. But you could see how this could be used, you know, perhaps in, in ways that would mess up traffic. I know that there was another story I was reading where this guy got really ticked off that because when there was a traffic jam... Google Maps routed all the traffic through his neighborhood, uh, you know, from, you know, basically from a city street through a neighborhood street was, you know, added a whole lot of traffic. And so this guy would actually, he went around phoning in other traffic accidents and things to the device, to, to the, the Maps app and trying to get people to not come this way by basically saying, oh, don't come this way. There's an accident. Uh, of course, within two weeks, they figured out this guy was doing this and they cut him off. But, you know, these, <laughs> all these algorithms uh, have ways of being hacked. And, uh, you know, th- I thought this was interesting. And just to bring it up to, to, to show that these things aren't perfect. And if you know, you know, how these things work, it's, it's often trivial to make them give false data. All right, next up, if you happen to own one of the Philips Hue light bulbs, and these they're very popular, you know, if you're into these things, they change color. You can use your phone to turn them off and on and change their color and brightness and all those kind of things. Uh, I personally don't have one yet because I really don't have a need for that particular use case, but uh, they are pretty popular. But unfortunately, there's been a pretty nasty bug in these things recently that, that could allow your Wi-Fi network to be hacked. So uh, let me read this article from the Hacker News. There are over 100 potential ways hackers can ruin your life by having access to your Wi-Fi network that's also connected to your computers, smartphones, and other smart devices. Whether it's about exploiting operating system vulnerabilities or manipulating network traffic, every attack relies on the reachability between an attacker and the targeted devices. In recent years, we've seen how hundreds of widely used, smart but insecure devices made it easier for remote hackers to sneak into connected networks without breaking Wi-Fi passwords. In the latest research shared by the Hacker News, Checkpoint experts today revealed a new high-severity vulnerability affecting the Philips Hue smart light bulbs that can be exploited over the air from over 100 meters away to gain entry into a targeted Wi-Fi network. 
Now, this is going to get a little technical, and I'll, uh, but I'll explain this uh, after I finish reading the article. The underlying high-severity vulnerability, tracked as CVE-2020-6007, resides in the way Philips implemented the Zigbee communication protocol in its smart light bulb, in its smart light bulb leading to a heap-based buffer overflow issue. Again, don't let that bother you. I'll explain it later. Zigbee is a widely used wireless technology designed to let device each device communicate with another device in the network. The protocol has been built into tens of millions of devices worldwide, including Amazon Echo, Samsung SmartThings, Belkin Emo, and more. And this is a quote from the Checkpoint researcher. They say, Through this exploitation, a threat actor can infiltrate a home or office's computer network over the air, spreading ransomware or spyware by using nothing but a laptop and an antenna with, from over 100 meters. Many of us are aware that IoT devices can pose security risk, a security risk, but this research shows how even the most mundane, seemingly dumb devices, such as light bulbs, can be exploited by hackers and used to take over networks or plant malware. Checkpoint responsibly disclosed these vulnerabilities to Philips and Signify, uh, owner of the Philips Hue brand, in November 2019, who just last month released an updated patched firmware for the device. And then quoting again, uh, it's critical that organizations and individuals protect themselves against these possible attacks by updating their devices with the latest patches and separating them from other machines on their networks to limit the possible spread of malware. In today's complex cyber attack, land cyber attack landscape, we cannot afford to overlook the security of anything that is connected to our networks. All right, so let's unpack some of that. So Zigbee, I'm not going to get into that too much, but it's because you don't really need to know, but it's the key thing to know is that your devices do more than even just talk Wi-Fi. They've got other wireless ways of communicating uh, because they're, they're trying to make things simple for you. When you if you plug in a light bulb, there's no there's no keyboard, there's no anything you can enter on that light bulb to put in things like passwords. So you've got to find some other way to do it. And instead of making you find some way to to do that for every single light bulb, sometimes you do it for one light bulb, and then that light bulb, that light bulb stores information and passes it on to any other light bulbs of the same kind that you plug in. And that's where things like Zigbee come in, where this this communications mechanism allows them to to do this on the side. As long as they can all kind of talk in this language, uh, all these devices can work together to share this kind of information. But this just gives one more way for hackers to get in. So one thing I'd like, a couple of things I'd like to draw your attention to, the, the whole CVE thing. I haven't talked about that much in this show, but whenever there's a some sort of a computer vulnerability found, it's this standardized way that we have come to um, categorize and catalog all of these errors. And it's called Common Vulnerability Enumeration, CVE. Uh, and the next number you might have noticed was the year. So CVE-2020, which you know give, tells us what year it's found. And then the last number, presumably, is just an incrementing number, 6,007, which, if that's true, means that already by February, uh, we found over 6,000 enumerated vulnerabilities in various products around the world, which, you know, there's a lot of things to do, but 6,000 in a month. And then, it, you know, it made this mention to a heap-based buffer overflow, and that's a very, very technical term. But it turns out that this buffer overflow thing is a very common way that hackers break things. And uh, because if the, you know, they find some input that's not validated, then they give it way more input than it's supposed to do, and it causes it to choke, but it does it in a, in a way that they can actually then can take control of the device. I know, it's complicated. But at the end of the day, what we really have to realize is that all these smart devices, all these internet-connected things, all these IoT devices that we're hooking into our network, every single one of them is a potential vulnerability to our home network. And so my takeaway from this is twofold. First, if you have any of these devices, you need to figure out how you upgrade their software. If you're lucky, 
these things will upgrade themselves. And you can flip some switch, and if you're really lucky, it's already turned on, that says, keep my device up to date. So this thing is constantly going out to the mothership and saying, hey, is there a new software update? And downloading and installing it whenever there is. So that when these bugs are found, you don't have to read the news to find out about them and go patch it yourself. Uh, they just fix themselves. However, many of these devices cannot do that. So you still need to understand for every device you plug in that you have to connect to a network, which means you have to give it like a Wi-Fi password usually, you should know how to update the software of that device and if it can update its own software by itself. Uh, and if it can't, you probably should not have that on your, on your network. Second takeaway, uh, and I've mentioned this before, but almost every modern Wi-Fi router today um, not only has the regular network that you hook up to and you give it some cool name like Go Boilers or, you know, whatever you want to call your network that people will see when they bring up, you know, their phone and try to connect to Wi-Fi and they'll see Go Boilers and they'll connect to that. Uh, but most, almost all of these devices now have the capability to have a guest network, which is really just a second Wi-Fi network. It, it's segregated from your main network. The real value there is that you can put, and you should, Put all of these Internet of Things devices, all these IoT devices on the guest network. Keep them segregated. Keep them quarantined. Uh, for the most part, all these devices really need to do is either talk to each other or uh, like all these huge light bulbs, for example, or talk to the mothership. Talk, you know, phone, phone back into some service on the Internet where it gets some, some data or helps you do something. Um, like the Amazon Echo, right? You say something and it sends, sends your little voice snippet up to the cloud to be interpreted and then responded to and sends it back. But it doesn't require getting to any of your computers or anything in your house. So to keep them separate, to put them on the guest network means that if that device is ever compromised, it can't then be used as a base to probe your computers or your smartphones or, or any of the other, you know, more juicy devices in your house uh, that they might want to take over and or exfiltrate data from. So again, if you've got your own Wi-Fi router uh, and you can set up a guest network, it should be very easy. Just, you know, you'll have to go to the router's uh, admin webpage which I know might be difficult uh, for some of you to figure out, but it's usually, oh boy. So if you look at your, if you find out what your IP address is of your laptop, let's say, if it's like 192.168.0.55, what that should mean is that your router is 192.168.0.1. It's usually almost the, you know, the base address is almost always one for your router. And if you log into that, you should get an administration webpage, which lets you configure that device. And that should let you set up a guest network and so on. If that was way too much to, <laughs> for you to comprehend in a single uh, listen, go to my website, go to firewallsdonestopdragons.com and search on router or Wi-Fi router. Uh, and you'll find there I've got one article in there about securing your Wi-Fi routers uh, that goes through a lot of this stuff and gives you more detail. All right, next up, I've talked about Ring Doorbell a lot. And um, uh, I just want to read quickly from this Lifehacker article because they, you know, they've gotten in, caught a lot of heat for some of the cozy relationships they've had with the, the police departments and how they're letting them you know, ask all the neighborhood users, uh, the neighborhood app users to, to, to send them in video when they think a crime may have happened, you know, and whatever you may think about that. But personally, to me, that that's a little bit pushy and a little bit too much of a surveillance state. But anyway, uh, they've because of that, they've given the users more granular control over some of these privacy and security issues. So this Life Hacker article refers to several of these, and I just want to walk through it really quick from the article. It feels like plenty of people aren't going to ditch their expensive video, door, video camera doorbells no matter what Ring does, either because they paid good money for one, or they're stubborn, or they don't want to spend even more time messing with the screwdrivers and wires to install something else. 
That's fine. We all make decisions in life, good and bad. But if you're sticking with your Ring devices, you should definitely check out the new Control Center that the company just debuted in its Android and iOS apps. Once you access it, you'll see a number of options that are all worth investigating. I'd start from the bottom up. Scroll down to the Community Control section and tap on the Video Requests. Turn the switch to Disabled to, bl to block local police agencies from being able to request videos from your various Ring devices via Ring's Neighborhood Service. And if you want to know which of your local police departments, if any, might request this kind of information, tap on the View Active Agency Map option. This won't prevent police from using subpoenas or warrants to get their hands on your videos. It's only keeping them from using Neighbors, the Neighbors app, to request footage, which might be annoying or might be something you have no desire to participate in. Finally, tap on Two-Factor Authentication. You should have already been using this to secure your account, even though Ring never previously prompted you to do so. And it notes here parenthetically, it says, it'll soon flick on two-factor authentication automatically for new accounts, but Ring isn't going to force existing accounts to use two-factor authentication. You can use this screen to verify that you are using two-factor authentication. And if not, you can and should set it up. Admittedly, Ring's implementation is really two-step authentication, a less secure setup where you're texted verification codes when logging in. It's easier for someone to get their hands on your phone number than on a physical device like the authentication app on your fingerprint-locked smartphone. But two-step authentication is better than nothing. All right, so that's all I'm going to say about that. If you're interested in that, check, uh, and you have a Ring doorbell, then there's some interesting settings you might want to go play with. All right, next up, uh, critical Android Bluetooth flaw uh, has been found uh, to be exploitable without any uh, user interaction whatsoever. And here's a short blurb on this from uh, Bleeping Computer. Android users are urged to apply the latest security patches released for the operating system on Monday. That would be probably a week ago for those of you hearing this now. An attacker could leverage the security flaw, now identified as, and there's a CVE number, without user participation to run arbitrary code on the device with the elevated privileges of the Bluetooth daemon when the wireless module is active. Now, again, don't, Bluetooth daemon is another computer term. It's a Bluetooth service that's running on your phone. Discovered and reported by Jan Rouge at the... Techniche, oh God, I'm going to get that wrong. Some secure mobile, uh, some secure mobile networking lab. The bug is considered a critical, to be critical on Android Oreo, which is eight and eight point one, and Pi, which is uh, version nine, because exploiting it leads to code execution, meaning that basically the hackers can do whatever they want with your phone. If they if they exploit this on Android eight or nine, uh, they can run any malware they want on your phone. According to Rouge, attackers could use this security fault to spread malware from one vulnerable device to another, like a worm. A worm is a type of virus. However, the transmission is limited to the short, dis to the short distance covered by Bluetooth, which, you know, Bluetooth is about, what, I think 33 feet or something like that. On Android 10, the severity rating drops to moderate, since all it does is crash the Bluetooth daemon, the researcher says. Android versions earlier than 8 may also be affected, but the impact on them has not been assessed. Despite a patch being avail available, OEM, or Original Equipment Manufacturer, vendors and mobile carriers also have to push it to user terminals or devices. For devices still under support, it can take weeks until the update rolls out. If a patch does not become available, Rouge recommends enabling Bluetooth only if strictly necessary. If you need to activate it, consider keeping the device non-discoverable, a feature that hides it from other gadgets looking for a pair. Okay, again, that's that's kind of technical, I realize. But the upshot is that Android devices uh, running uh, versions uh, 8 or 9, which colloquially are, are called Oreo and Pi, versions Oreo and Pi, if you have a device that's still running those older operating systems, uh, Android operating systems, they are critically vulnerable to this bug. Now, 
realize that somebody has to be close to you for this to happen. They have to be walking near you, uh, and your device has to be on, and Bluetooth has to be on. Uh, and they, you know, they've got to be the hacker trying to do this. So it's not like it's going to happen over the internet and someone in Russia or China or wherever is going to hack your mobile phone this way. But if I were a hacker and, and I wanted to exploit this, I would just go to a popular area, bus stop, mall, train station, subway station, whatever, where there's somewhere there's a lot of people and just walk around with my device and it would automatically look for vulnerable devices and try to hack them. But anyway, I, it, it's not super worrying. The real problem here, and the, one of the reasons I'm bringing this up again, is that Android devices, unlike iOS devices or iPhones, are notoriously hard to get up to date. And that's because with Android, there's all these chains in the uh, all these links in the chain. You know, not only does Google have to find and, and come up and patch the bug in the operating system, but then it's got to go to the the wireless device manufacturer like Samsung or LG or whoever. They've got to vet and test that that change. And they've got to make that available then to all their devices, possibly with some modifications. And then the carriers get involved, Verizon, AT&T, whoever. They have to then get their hands on these things, test it, vet it, maybe make changes, and then push them out if you're lucky. So that's that's the really hard part with Android right now. Now, Android 10 has gone a long way toward fixing some of that stuff because uh, it's it's rearranged its software to allow direct updates to some of the key parts of the operating system. But nevertheless, iPhones, on the other hand, from Apple, Apple owns everything, uh, hardware and software, and they fully control updates to that software and make those things available much, much quicker, just from a practical standpoint, than Android ever could. But of course, that's small consolation to you now if you have an Android device. So if you do have an Android device, just keep it up to date. Every time you see uh, the option for an update, make sure you're taking those updates and getting them installed right away. All right, next up, uh, I'd be curious to know if this hit more mainstream media outlets because I see it everywhere, but then I'm subscribed to a whole lot of security and privacy websites and, you know, forums and Twitter accounts and things. And maybe I see this everywhere just because that's, you know, I'm more tuned in. But this is the kind of story that could make the, you know, make the nightly news because it sounds so interesting and, and potentially devastating, but it's, it's really not. So the headline here from the Hacker News is exfiltrating data from air-gapped computers using screen brightness. So let's unpack that. So first of all, exfiltrating data, you know, stealing data, you know, logging into a device and and having and pulling out data. You know, maybe it's passwords, credit card numbers, social security numbers, documents, whatever. And then air-gapped means for computers that are in you know extremely secure facilities, they don't even they don't connect them to the internet at all. They're not connected to the internet. They're like the old days or like, you know, 25 years ago when your computer was just your computer and whatever you did on that computer stayed on that computer. And if you wanted to put something on the computer, you had to install a disk or something to copy that file or software or whatever onto that computer. There was no other way to get it. Today, most computers are hooked to the internet. And so you can get stuff, you know, pushed and pulled from that computer from all around the planet 24 seven. So if you want a secure computer, you unplug the internet in a lot of cases. That's what it means to be air gapped. There's, in other words, there's there's error between your ethernet port on the back of the computer and the ethernet cable somewhere else, AKA it's not plugged in. So realize first of all that that, that most people don't have air gapped computers. Uh, so you're not the likely target of this, even though the nightly news may make it sound that way. And then realize how how this needs to be done in the first place. And it's really not you know quite so sensational. So basically what has to happen here is the bad guys need to have malware already installed on the computer for which you want to exfiltrate data. 
So they're already compromised. Now, the trouble here is because the computer's not hooked up to the internet in any way, Wi-Fi or wired, you can't easily connect to that computer to get that data off the computer. You may have collected the data with the malware, but how are you going to get it off the computer? Well, they've come up with all these interesting ways to basically make the computer communicate that data in some other fashion. And this is just a new one. Uh, so this one, the malware, very imperceptibly changes the brightness of the screen in a, in a rhythmic pattern, in a way to communicate. They'll think of it as Morse code, but it's, you know, it's probably more complicated than that. But basically, change the brightness just enough that a, a camera nearby can watch that screen and detect these minor changes in brightness and then interpret those changes as a code, read the code, and then get the data. So if you're paying attention here, what that also means is that not only do you have you had to have found some way to get malware on the target computer, you also have to either install or compromise a video camera nearby that happens to be pointing right at that computer's monitor. And then, then you need something connected to that camera to still get that data off-site somehow. So there's been clever researchers have found all sorts of interesting ways to do this. Some of them have, you know, on older Windows PCs, there's usually a hard drive light that flashes, right? Or even a power light. But the hard drive light always flashes, so you wouldn't necessarily think that's strange if you see it flashing. Some of these malware uh, things have figured out how to flash those activity lights to do the same thing, to, to, to pulse out some sort of a code that if something nearby can watch that thing flash, it can read the code and then, you know, transfer this device over the air because otherwise there's no way to get to that computer because it's not on the internet. There, there have been all sorts of things. This is just the latest. So, you know, some of the headlines make it sound like, oh my God, you know, oh my goodness, you know, if, if the, the bad guy can look through your window and see your computer screen, he can take all the data off your computer. That is not true. And, you know, <laughs> and again, you know, the other thing you have to realize, especially, you know, for your home computers, if, if, if they were able to get the malware on your computer in the first place, your, your computer is not likely to be air-gapped. It's connected to the internet. So as long as the malware is on there, they've already got you. They don't need to do any of these weird things to get data off of there. They've got the malware installed right on your computer who can tattle on you right over the internet like everything else. So these things make great headlines and they can be easily interpreted and, you know, to light your hair on fire and the sky is falling. But they're very contrived and they're not something that most people need to worry about. All right, last story here, and uh, this is something I've talked to you about uh, recently a lot, uh, surveillance data and whatnot, but the, the New York Times does a really good job of writing this up and brings in some, some interesting points of view, I think, uh, on this topic. So I wanted to read this article. It's a little bit long, but basically I just want to read this, and then that'll be that. So from the New York Times, it says, well, it starts actually with a quote from uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, and the quote from John Roberts says, when the government tracks the location of a cell phone, it achieves near-perfect surveillance as if it had attached an ankle monitor to the phone's user, unquote. And this came from a ruling in 2018 called the Carpenter case, which we've actually talked about on this show. In fact, I believe it was David Reese that we've had on the show, uh, one of the ex-EFF uh, guys who actually, or ACLU guys who actually argued this case in the Supreme Court. Anyway, this ruling basically says that uh, prevented the government from obtaining location data from cell phone towers without a warrant. And back to the Chief Justice, quote, he says, uh, continuing, he says, we declined to grant the state unrestricted access to a wireless carrier's database of physical location information, unquote. So with that judicial intent in mind, it's alarming to read a new report in the Wall Street Journal that found the Trump administration, quote, has bought access to a commercial database that maps the movements of millions of cell phones in America and is using it for the immigration and border enforcement, unquote. 
The data used by the government comes not from the cell phone companies, but from a location data company, one of many that are quietly and relentlessly collecting the precise movements of all smartphone-owning Americans through their phone apps. Many apps, weather apps or coupon apps for instance, gather and record location data without users understanding what the code is up to. That data can then be sold to third-party buyers, including, apparently, the government. Since the data is available for sale, it seems the government believes that no court oversight is necessary. And a quote from the Wall Street Journal, says, The federal government has essentially found a workaround by purchasing location data used by marketing firms rather than going to court for a, on a case-by-case -case basis. Because location data is available through numerous commercial ad exchanges, government lawyers have approved the programs and concluded that the Carpenter ruling doesn't apply, unquote. And the Carpenter ruling, again, was the, uh, the Supreme Court case that I was quoting from uh, John Roberts earlier. A spokesman from the Customs and Border Protection defended the practice in a statement to the New York Times. It says, quote, While CBP is being provided access to location information, it is important to note that such information does not include cellular phone tower data, is not ingested in bulk, and does not include the individual user's identity, unquote. Use of this type of location tracking data by the government has not been tested in court, and in the private sector, location data and the multi-billion dollar advertising ecosystem that has eagerly embraced it are both opaque and largely unregulated. Last year, a Times opinion of investigation found that claims about the anonymity of location data are untrue since comprehensive records of time and place easily identify real people. Consider a commute. Even without a name, how many phones travel between a specific home and a specific office every day? This week's revelations dredge up many questions about CBP's workflow. What precisely does the agency mean when it claims that the data is not ingested in bulk? Who in the agency gets to look at that data and for what purposes? Where is it stored? How long is it stored for? If the government plans to outsource the, outsource the surveillance state to commercial entities to bypass Supreme Court rulings, both parties ought to be questioned under oath about the specifics of their practices. The use of location data to aid in deportations also demonstrates how out of date the notion of informed consent has become. When users accept the terms and conditions for various digital products, not only are they uninformed about how their data is gathered, they are also consenting to future uses that they could never predict. Without oversight, it's inconceivable that tactics turned against undocumented immigrants won't eventually be turned to the enforcement of other laws. As the world has seen in the streets of Hong Kong, where protesters wear masks to avoid a network of government facial recognition cameras, once a surveillance technology is widely deployed in a society, it's almost impossible to uproot. Chief Justice Roberts outlined those stakes in his Carpenter ruling. And again, quoting from uh, Roberts, it says, The retrospective quality of the data here gives police access to a category of information otherwise unknowable. In the past, attempts to reconstruct a person's movements were limited by a dearth of records and the frailties of recollection. With access to cell phone location data, the government can now travel back in time to retrace a person's whereabouts, subject only to the retention policy of wireless carriers, which currently maintains records for up to five years. Critically, because log location information is continually logged for all of the 400 million devices in, in the United States, not just those belonging to persons who might happen to come under investigation, this newfound tracking capacity runs against everyone, unquote. So just to quickly recap, basically in 2018, a Supreme Court ruling says that the government had to get warrants, uh, which means they had to specifically target a certain person for a certain amount of time to obtain their location information from cell phone companies. Uh, prior to that, they could just ask for it and they would get it. 
So obviously the spirit of this ruling is, and you can tell this from John, uh, John Roberts' quote, is that this is some really, really sensitive information. And having access to all the location data of 400 million devices in the United States uh, for up to five years in the history, and honestly, it goes back further than that because these location companies, it's not just the cell phone companies that are having this. They're selling it to other people, and those companies are probably keeping it forever. Basically means that the U.S. government could, bypassing this carpenter ruling, uh, instead of having to get a warrant, can just go buy it on the open market. And with this information, even the, it, currently the, the focus of this information is the Customs and Border Patrol uh, using it to track down folks that they believe need to be deported. <laughs> um, it could be used by any government agency, really, or local law enforcement, for that matter, police and sheriff's departments, the FBI, the CIA, all these, you know, anybody. It, honestly, potentially people outside of the country. What's to prevent China or Russia from, you know, finding the, all the location information for every U.S. senator and every congressman? You know, what if they were use that information to find out that they were visiting a mistress or doing something else that they could be blackmailed for? I also think it's just laughable that, they're, that the CBP's excuse says, well, yeah, but it's, you know, it's, we don't collect a lot of that information. And, you know, we when we do, we don't really get a name associated with that information, which is just silly. I mean, if they don't if they don't have the name associated with the number, then what's the whole point? Of, well, how is it even useful to them anyway? So. You know, I've brought this up many times, but I thought this article brought up some really interesting points and I wanted, you know, I thought it was important to realize that even though the Supreme Court basically ruled against this practice and said, no, 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 you got to get a warrant before you can just blindly track someone's location. They said, well, okay. And then they, <laughs> they were just went to the open market of, you know, that all from all these data brokers and there are many of them and just bought it there. And to them, this means that they don't need to get a warrant. Okay. So enough news for the week. Uh, but uh, tax time is coming up, and I've got a couple simple recommendations I want to pass on to you uh, as you get ready to file your taxes this year. And I've, I'm sure I've brought this up in previous years, but it's important to note. If you haven't done it already, you should be doing it. So first of all, uh, there are, for most Americans, uh, making less than $69,000, and that's adjusted gross income. Uh, and there's some other uh, ways you can qualify for this as well, but that's kind of the general requirement. You can qualify to use the free file system. And that means it's truly free. And there's H&R Block, uh, TurboTax, uh, TaxCut. There are several companies that, that offer this service. And to get it, you have to go to our special website. Because if you don't, if you just try to Google it, invariably, you'll probably land on one of these companies' other quote-unquote free products, which almost always is a bait and switch. Now, you start off being free, and as soon as you hit one special case, oh, you've got a student loan, or oh, you've got a you've got a you've got a vacation property, or oh, your company gives you uh, some stock options. Well, now now you can't do the free one. Now you've got to upgrade, and you know, and some in some cases that may be true, but a lot of these quote unquote special situations are still covered under the actual IRS official free file program options. So uh, we talked to Justin Elliott from ProPublica about this, uh, did a whole podcast on it. If you didn't hear that, I would certainly recommend going back and listen to it because it's just fascinating and honestly disturbing, uh, all the things that Intuit and some of these companies have done over the last, you know, almost 20 years now with this free file program to do everything they can to, to not provide this service, even though they agreed to do it. So anyway, uh, there's an irs.gov website. And if you go to irs.gov, you could probably just search there on free file. 
But uh, and I'll put this link, of course, in the show in the show notes. And uh, I just talked about this in my in my latest blog entry as well. So you can just go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com uh, and look at my most recent article on uh, filing your taxes for free. And these these links will be there as well. Uh, but it's irs.gov/filing/free-file-do-your. Oh, I'm not going to write it. Free file do your federal taxes for free. There's a dash between all those words, all lowercase. Or uh, maybe even better yet, you can go to ProPublica.org. That's P-R-O-P-U-B-L-I-C-A.org. Uh, and if you look at their recent articles on taxes and just maybe search on taxes, they'll find the article on how to file state and federal taxes for free in 2020. Uh, they not only talk about and point you to the, the free file programs through the IRS, uh, but they also talk about other ways you can qualify for this program and just some other, other great tips for how to file your taxes for the minimum amount of money online. And by the way, if you're concerned about it, I consider these things to be completely secure, just like all the banking online is secure. They've, they've really, I mean, they've nailed the encryption parts. So, uh, you know, I would not worry about the security aspects of this other than, and that's my next point, somebody filing a tax return on your behalf, that's become a big tax fraud scam where somebody basically logs into the IRS as you, knows enough about you, probably uh, your social security number, your address, maybe your birth date somehow convinces the IRS website that they are you and then files a tax uh, return on your behalf, uh, of course, claiming a massive refund that you are not due and having the check sent to them at some other address. So to prevent that, first of all, I would definitely recommend that you go ahead, if, even if you haven't done it already, and even if you don't plan to file through the IRS uh, online, go to irs.gov and set up an account for yourself now. Setting up an account for yourself now uh, would mean that someone else who tries to come up and set an account for you in the future won't be able to because it's already there. And if you create a good password for that account, then they will not be able to hack that account. Furthermore, the IRS offers a pseudo, pseudo two-factor authentication thing where you can get what's called an identity protection pin or personal identification number. And it's there's some weird qualifications for this. Uh, I'll read through them here. Uh, one of them you could qualify to get, not everybody for some reason, not everybody can get this pin code. Uh, which I think is really dumb. But uh, currently, the qualifications are, A, the IRS sends you a CP01A notice containing your IP PIN. So I don't know why they would do that. Maybe you had a a fraud case in the past and they offered this to you. Otherwise, you may have received a a letter. B, you may have received a letter from the IRS inviting you to opt into this IP PIN program. Or you filed a federal tax return last year as a resident of one of the following states. Arizona, California, Colorado, Connecticut, Delaware, D.C., District of Columbia, Florida, Georgia, Illinois, Maryland, Michigan, Nevada, New Jersey, New Mexico, New York, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, Texas, or Washington. Now, that list is expanded. When I first wrote the article on this years ago, there were only three states on that list. So I'm not sure I'm not sure what makes it magic to be in these states. But if you happen to be in one of those states like I do, I'm in North Carolina, I went ahead and filed for this IP thing. And it's kind of like uh, knowledge-based questions that are pulled off your credit record. They ask you some questions that supposedly only you would know, you know, your social security number, your date of birth, your current address, the last eight digits of one of your credit cards or uh, a loan number for your, maybe your house or your car, some of these kind of things that it looks up probably on your credit record, uh, maybe from past tax filings, not sure, and verifies who you are. Now, I got all the way through this to the very end when it says, okay, enter your mobile phone number, one that we can check with the phone companies to verify uh, one more thing that you know says you are you. And I gave them my cell phone number and they said, uh, we can't verify you with that. I don't know why. I've had the same number for many, many, many years. 
Uh, it's with a common carrier. Uh, I don't know why this would have been an issue, but apparently that didn't work. So I actually had to file for one to be sent to me in the mail to my last uh, address of record with the IRS. So anyway, I don't know why it failed there. Uh, you may find that too. But if you could do it, uh, if you qualify for this, I would suggest that you go ahead and do that as well. And finally, just beware of phone and email scams. This is the time of year. So usually what it will be is it'll be some email or phone caller claiming to be uh, an agent of the IRS. And they will say that you have done something horribly wrong, uh, that you owe terrible, terrible fines, and that if you don't pay something right now, uh, someone's going to be knocking at your door and taking you to jail. Something along those lines. Really horrific stuff. If you ever get a call that sounds like that, just, just hang up. If you get an email like that, put it in your junk folder. That is not how the IRS operates. We like to make these guys, you know, out to be the bad guys, evil people or whatever. They're not. They're just, they're just regular people trying to enforce, you know, our rather arcane tax laws. But they're not. They repeat. They are not going to call you and threaten you and tell you that you've got to pay them money right now. So if you get something like that, just, just hang up. If you're for somehow still worried that maybe that was real, that that was the truth, you could just call the IRS directly, you know, go to the website for IRS, find their your customer support number, call in. You'll probably have to wait. And, you know, once you get through, say, Hey, I just got this call. Actually, they'll probably want to know that you got this scam call and say, you know, is there really something wrong? You know, and at that point, you know, you can deal with it there, but if they call you out of the blue or send you an email out of the blue and claim to be the IRS, treat that with high skepticism, especially if they're claiming that you owe them money and there will be dire consequences if you don't pay right away. So now you know this, and uh, please, please tell your friends and family this as well. Perhaps especially some of your uh, uh, more elderly family members who might be a little more susceptible to these things, uh, who might be more likely to believe somebody who says they're from the IRS when they call, or you know, perhaps could throw a lot of stuff at them that might cause them to believe that. So anyway, so spread the words to some other folks as well, and, and let them know. Spread this on your... Um, you know, social media, whatever, just kind of get the word out that these things are happening. And again, uh, you, you know, if you go to firewallstonesupdragons.com, you'll see I have an article about this and you can maybe, you know, maybe you can send that to make it easy. All right. See, I told you that we had a lot of stuff to cover this week. Again, never a dull moment. There's always something going on. But uh, next week, uh, if all things go as planned, uh, we will have a very interesting interview with Corey Doctorow. So a couple other uh, tidbits before I let you go. I am on the brink of signing the contract to write the fourth edition of my book, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm very excited about that. Uh, again, if you've got feedback, if you've got the book and you want to give me some feedback on things you might want me to expand upon uh, or update, uh, you can reach me at feedback at firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. And I, I do listen to these things. I may not reply to every one of them, but I do read, try to read every one of them, follow them away. So when I get around to writing the book, I will try to incorporate that. And one more thing I'll mention that I, I try not to mention too often because I don't want to sound like an infomercial, but if you'd like to support what I'm doing here, all the work I'm doing here, you can go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and search on Firewall Stone Step Dragons. There's a lot of different ways you can contribute there. And I would, uh, but one particular one I want to call out now because of the new book coming out is I've got a level called Open Book. Uh, and if you sign up for that and maintain that for at least three months, I will send you a signed copy of my book that will include the current version uh, and then the fourth edition when it comes out. So if that's something that interests you, check out that one in particular, patreon.com. And that's going to do it this week. Thanks again for tuning in. And as always, you could subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. And while you're there uh, subscribing, I would love for you to drop a nice review on the podcast. And you could do this for the book as well. If you've read the book, uh, I would love to get an Amazon review from you. Those things will carry forward to the fourth edition. So that's very nice to have. 
And as always, you know, spread the word. Tell friends and family. I would very much appreciate it. So until next week, everybody, as always, stay safe and don't get caught with your garbage down.